Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, I assume your favorite book. Uh, and it is available as a paperback, an audiobook, and the ebook is free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. So get your hands on that once you're invested in the story of two 11 year old detectives flying around on jetpacks fighting giant robot bees. Well, by golly, pay money to see them take on the alligator people. And coming hopefully June 14th, but certainly soon and very soon, uh, there'll be uh, the third book and uh, potentially final in the series Banneker Bones and the Cyborg Conspiracy. So look forward to that. Uh, under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I write uh, books for older readers, such as the young adult novel All Together Now, A Zombie Story. Uh, and then, of course, my serial horror novel, The Book of David. Uh, the Book of David is about an atheist that purchases a haunted house that then begins to give him religious visions involving flying saucers. It is a good time. Uh, if you're curious, you can get the first of the five uh, five volumes of that serial horror novel, The Book of David, Chapter One, as an ebook to download for free. Uh, whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold, if you say, Rob, I like listening to things, I don't like reading things, fair enough. Check your back catalog. I released a free audiobook recording of the Book of David, Chapter 1. I think three or four episodes before this, so go back and check that out. Check the YouTube channel. Check middlegradeninja.com. You're going to find it. Uh, while you're at middlegradeninja.com, make sure you check out interviews with hundreds of literary agents, editors, publishing professionals, um, authors, of course, folks you'd be interested in. You could spend days upon days reading those interviews and, and uh, have a great time and um, uh, I hope that you will. And you'll also read an interview with uh, tonight's guest, uh, Sarah LaPola. Sarah, how are you this evening? I'm doing well. How are you? I am excellent. I appreciate you making time to uh, chat with me. Uh, it just occurred to me, I forgot to say that we are recording this on April 22nd. And the reason I mention that is because in the time of uh, uh, quarantine for COVID-19, the news moves at an unbelievable pace. So whatever happens between when uh, we're recording this and when this airs, we can't possibly be expected to react to because we have no idea can't what's be held happening. Accountable. <laughs> <laughs> so that being said, probably the uh, best place to start is I don't uh, I don't summarize other people's books and I try not to do their biographies because I'm terrible at both. Uh, so if you would please give uh, esteemed audience kind of an overview of your background. Wow. So um, up until very recently, I was a literary agent uh, with Bradford Literary. And before that, I was an agent at Curtis Brown Literary and focusing mostly on young adult uh, and middle grade and some adult, but not not quite as much. Um, and in January, I started my own freelance editing company. It's called Next Chapter Editorial. And I'm kind of focusing all across the board, so not just YA and middle grade, but I've been doing a lot of adult, uh, specifically sci-fi and women's fiction I'm doing a lot of right now, um, just sort of how things have formed, but I'm still trying to focus on kidlet as much as possible and would love to get even more of it. Uh, but yeah, that's sort of what I've been up to and I don't know how, I don't know what else uh, I can say. Oh, that's a start. I'm going to uh, ask you to break down a couple of those roles for us because I want to know a little bit more about everything. All right. Um, but real quick, uh, for all those eager beavers that have already said sold, let me let me, let me me get in touch with uh, Sarah LaPola and, and get things rolling. What's the best way for esteemed audience to get in touch with you to seek out your uh, editorial services? So the 
Best way would just be email me um, at sarah at nextchapteredits.com. And what I usually look for is just a quick synopsis, uh, not a whole synopsis length synopsis, but like literally shorter than a query of like what your book is about and what type of services you're looking for. And we can go from there. Um, I'm also on Readsy which is R-E-E-D-S-Y, um, and you can search for me on there and just get in contact and, and book any services straight through that website as well. Excellent. So, um, well, let's uh, start with your the beginning of your career. I was curious because you got a Master of Fine Arts and Creative Writing of Nonfiction. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it seems like you're not, uh, you haven't been doing a whole lot of editing of, of, of nonfiction. So when and why did you make that shift for <laughs> fiction? Why did I focus on fiction? Yeah, and, and when did that shift for you? Uh, I honestly, I think I fell into young adult specifically, just because of the time I started in publishing. Uh, I focused on nonfiction in both undergrad and for my MFA, and I always wrote personal essays and, you know, like short memoir pieces. And I think if it had existed at the time, I would have like in another life been like, I'm now a BuzzFeed writer, like exclusively, like that would have been my dream job if it existed when I was in college. Um, and that's just sort of what I like to write because it came naturally to me, but it's not something I thought of selling. Uh, one, like personal estate collections just you know don't sell that, that well. And when you're just starting out in publishing, you sort of need to make a name right away and, and YA and paranormal was the hot thing. So that's sort of just what I fell into representing first. Uh, I will, like now that I'm on the editing side, um, you know, memoir is sort of treated the same way as, as fiction, so that's something that's in my wheelhouse editorially and, and certainly my background as a writer. Uh, but I just sort of slowly uh, distance myself from it, but it's still what I love to read. It's still what I love to write when I do write. Um, and But it just like, it's sort of like a don't mix business with pleasure kind of thing for me of like, that's just like my, my writing life and uh, just the like re resume I've built up and my expertise has just developed into specifically young adult and kidlet, uh, but fiction in general. So is it uh, work on fiction all day and then at night to unwind, it's, it's time for nonfiction? I like reading fiction as well. I haven't been reading as much nonfiction and I should, uh, but what my usual go-tos uh, is adult literary fiction or just things that I can really get lost in a world, uh, yeah, like speculative fiction, but then like personal essays. So like either hyper-realistic or not realistic at all. <laughs> uh, and when you were getting your MFA, were you thinking that uh, you wanted to be working in publishing or uh, what was your, what was the goal? Uh, because I think because of what I studied, I never really thought like I will be a writer, uh, like as my full-time job because personal essayists aren't really full-time writers, um, especially in like 2006, 2007. Uh, you know, you have to already be kind of famous. And I was really young at the time. And, you know, when I was applying to MFA programs, I just wanted to move to New York. And like, I knew I wanted to keep studying writing, but the more important thing for me was becoming a better editor. And so I can move to New York and work in publishing. 
And that's sort of like the goal I had in mind. So I just did it. And then I got into the new school and I got to live in Greenwich Village my first two years of living in New York and started interning and it sort of like all kind of uh, snowballed from there. But yeah, in my head, I was like, I'm going to get this MFA, but it's more to be an editor and less to be like a full-time writer. But I still love writing and I still like doing it on, in my free time and maybe that'll be a thing I do professionally one day, but editing is probably my, my focus for the foreseeable future. And um, where were you moving to New York from? Not far, upstate New York. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to be in the city. <laughs> uh, so did, I know you started with Curtis Brown in, in 2008. You were an assistant to the Foreign Rights Department, is that right? Yeah, yeah, I started in foreign rights and I was I was in foreign rights all five, six years I was at Curtis Brown, um, which was really fun. I like working in sub rights. I think it's an area that all literary agents should be aware of and, and having that firsthand knowledge was really important to me. Uh, just learning another side of what being an agent is, is really important, I think and what else you can do for writers and what else is out there for writers. Uh, so I really liked it as a start. And then a company like Curtis Brown is so large that I just didn't have time to focus on my domestic list that I was building. So that's the reason I ended up leaving Foreign Rights um, and leaving the agency, but it was still like a really great experience. And so what, um... When you're moving from foreign rights to associate agent, forgive my my uh, my, my shocking ignorance of the uh, publishing industry, um, but how big of a change is that? And also, what kind of skills did you learn that you can be bringing to your editorial services now? Well, when I was starting in publishing, it was uh, right around the recession, so I got in just under the wire of all the hiring freezes, and. Publishing, it's sort of going through that a little bit right now, uh, again, but during the last recession, uh, you know, things just got a little bit harder and projects needed to be a lot more polished in order to sell. And I think my class of agents, uh, if you want to call us that, we all became very editorial. Like that was just how we learned how to be an agent. Uh so we had to learn the selling part of it and how to negotiate and all of that. Um, but the part that, you know, our older mentors didn't really have to do as much uh, was really edit the books. Or at least, you know, get them submission ready. And then the editors edit them. <laughs> <laughs> Would you, uh, did you ever take umbrage uh, having edited a book so professionally and, 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 and and got it to exactly where you want it. And then some new editor comes in and says, no, we're going to do it my way. No, no. Cause it was, it's always working in conjunction. And I, I mean, I can't speak for other agents, but when knowing I'd be an editorial agent, one, there's always that knowledge that this part is not my job, but it's the part I'm doing. Um, and it's, there's a line between submission ready and publication ready. And there would be those conversations with my authors of this, you know, there's this giant plot hole or the, this character's underdeveloped and these major things that I know an editor would be like, this project's not ready. Those are the parts that I would really work with my authors on and, and get it into shape. I would very rarely do line edits. Uh, 
you know, very rarely start nitpicking. Um, there'd be conversations where I'd be like, you know what, this is something we're going to let an editor just decide on their own of, of what to do because this isn't a deal breaker. And that would usually be my, my main line of, you know, is this going to be a deal breaker? Am I now just editing this book as an editor? And like, there's always that line of like, what is an editorial agent versus what is an editor? And it's letting the editors still have like have enough there to put their own vision into it and work with the author. Yeah, it's just you want to make sure that the editor can feel inspired and have those nice aha moments of yeah. I'm excited to be editing this book. Right, exactly, because like that's how I feel now as an editor of you know there is still something here to work with. Like I don't like these perfectly polished projects. You don't have anything to really roll up your sleeves and do. Um, you want to make sure the writing is good enough and the story is strong enough. So like, this is a writer who will be able to revise well and, and someone I can work with. Uh, you know, if it's not there at all, you're like, well, this just needs to be rewritten. There's not a whole lot of editing there. And if it's super polished, it's like, well, my job is done. Uh, so you, that, you know, there's potential to still grow with an author is like the sweet spot for like a really good editorial relationship, I think. So as you're looking now as an editor at, at, at projects you're considering working on, are you looking for that opportunity to uh, have, finally, uh, it's time for Sarah's say. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yes and no, because like my, my goal as a freelancer, like what I, who I work with most are people who are still looking to query agents. And, and that's a conversation I have with writers up front when they reach out to me is like, what are your publishing goals here? Because that means as a freelancer who's not working at the publisher they're eventually going to be at, I'm not going to be their final editor. Um, you know, what am I putting into this and what do you want from me? And sometimes it's authors who are going to self-publish and they're like, I'm gonna self-publish this, so I want it to be as polished as possible. I want a full line edit. I need someone to work with me developmentally. If it's a writer who, says, you know, this is something I want to query and publish traditionally, then I sort of switch gears because I know how to think like an agent and what an agent is going to want to see and then what a traditional editor is going to want to see. So it's just getting that project. Again, the same type of editing I would do as an agent of just getting this submission ready. But if an author is reaching out to me instead of an agent, I know they're looking for something a little bit more detailed than what just a, a surface level edit would do. But it's, it also depends on their needs. Sometimes it's just like, I can't look at this anymore. So you look at it for me and I'm like, okay, like that, maybe you don't need a full line edit, but you just want someone to assess this for you and, and see if you're on the right track. And that's, you know, it, I always just have those conversations with authors up front of like, what do you want me to do for you? And how can we work together on, you know, realizing this vision for you? Okay, so if I email you and I say, Sarah Lapola, I saw you uh, on the Middle Grade Ninja podcast. You sounded fantastic. I can't <laughs> wait to work with you. Uh, here's my manuscript. What one? What do I need to send to you, and how does the conversation begin from there? What's our next step? I always ask, you know, for a pitch of the book before I even like. I never really ask for material up front because sometimes that depends on the type of projects I do, you know, just query critiques and submission packages for authors who are like, my, my novel's done. I don't need you to edit it, but I do need help just like perfecting that 
part of it that an agent is going to see first. So like working on the first impressions or I'll do like a partial manuscript for people who are still sort of like in, in the plotting phase. So if you email me, for example, and say like, what, what can I do with this? I'll come back with a lot of questions probably of just like, well, first of all, what's your book about? How long is it? What are your plans for it in terms of publishing? How many rounds of edits have you done already? Uh, and just kind of go from there and then I can better assess, you know, like what I think would be the best fit for you in terms of editorial services. And, you know, authors have even told me like, no, I want to do this one instead. And I'll be like, all right, whatever you want. But like, here's what I think these needs are at the moment. Okay. Out of curiosity, why, why would you want to know how many rounds I've, I've already done if the, if the manuscript still needs like at least five more rounds? Well, the thing is that they're like a published book, if an author picks up their own work and is like, oh, I wish this wasn't already published because I could still edit it. So like there's, the editing process is never really over from an author's perspective. Um, I always just like knowing, you know, is this a first draft? Because if it is a first draft, it's not ready for line edits. It's not going to be ready for heavy developmental edits. Chances are like an assessment at best. But when someone says like it's had zero editing, this is like, a, this is still my rough draft. I will suggest, you know, maybe a partial manuscript at this point or just an assessment. Because um, sometimes authors do say like, I want a full developmental edit and it's just so not at that level yet because developmental is like, this is further on in the process. This means you're like almost ready to submit it in, in my definition of it. There's, a, there's different definitions of what developmental versus assessment means. Um, but for me, that means like, this is almost ready to go. And you're just looking, you're looking for this like final in-depth polish of it. Uh, but a first draft is still going to need so much more work and it's just not ready for that level of editing yet. And I also just like knowing what an author is doing on their own before reaching out to editors, because you have to learn how to self edit. Like you can't just always have other editors doing your things uh, because an agent wants to know that you can take notes. Editors want to know if you can take notes and just having that, you know, first round of edits just on your own of like really pausing, rereading your own work and making choices on your own of like, okay, this could be cut, or, oh, I didn't do a good job explaining this aspect of this character, and just having that vision for your story up front. Um, and I do have people coming to me as like, I've edited this like 20 times on my own, and I'm just like done, and I don't know why I keep getting rejections. And like, that's a whole other part of editing of like, all right, well, let's see why you're getting these rejections, and what are they saying? And, and it could just be an issue of the market, or something fundamental on a writing level that the writer has just completely lost sight of because they read their own work so many times already. So it just, it always depends. So that's okay. A few different questions uh, there. One, just to be clear, if I, uh, if I call you up and say, Hey Sarah, uh, or I'm sorry, email you. Um, mm -hmm. I'm thinking of writing a novel sometime in the next year. What advice can you give me? Is that, that nobody should be contacting you with something like no, that? No, Definitely not. Um, if I have had writers ask me, you know, I am working on five different projects at once, and I really just want to know what to focus on next. You know, they're not asking for editorial services, but they might, they might need a consulting session. Um, and, you know, that's something that I haven't been offering that much of for now. Um, 
again, I only just started and then a pandemic happened. So it's a little bit weird right now. Um, <laughs> a heck of a time to be making a transition. I know. It's, I mean, it's, it's weird. I mean, I work from home anyway. So like that part of it was at least a little bit easier. Uh, but yeah, it's people will ask for things that like are really just Q and a kind of questions. Um, or I'll ask in that instance of like a writer saying like, I don't know what to work on next. I'll be like, write me five different pitches for those five projects. And, you know, we can set up a time to discuss them. And like, that'll be the consulting session. Uh, you know, it's something that I like doing. I like giving career advice. That's the, the agent in me that has yet to yet to go away. Um, I like preparing authors for like, what is really out there in publishing if they want to go the traditional route. Uh, so if you just say like, hey, I wrote a book and I might finish it in a year, like that, no, still too early to contact me. But if you're like, hey, I already finished this book and I don't really know what to do with it because I started writing this other one that I really love instead and should I focus on that instead, then like that's a conversation I can have. I hope uh, you, you never stop doing that because you've got uh, just a wealth of knowledge and experience that will be <laughs> yeah, useful to authors. So if, if, if I come to you and I've got five projects, um, how would you typically go about prioritizing those for me? Again, it depends on author's needs. Um, I always ask, like, what are your publishing goals? And... I want to be wealthy and famous. <laughs> uh, find another career path. Um... <laughs> If it, but it is, if it's like, I want to be on that New York Times bestseller list, I want to write this commercial breakout, you know, that's a, a different book than I want to be a critical success, or I just want to see my name in print. Like, there's all these different reasons why authors want to get published. Um, is the book that you're writing the book that's going to give you the career you want? And that, that's part of the question that I guess you would ask a, an editor or agent and you know be prepared for the answer but that's you know i would ask if, what do you want out of publishing and if it's like i want to be a bestseller then you hopefully have written a commercial book with a great hook and you understand the market and you're well read in it so it always depends on you know what you want out of publishing gotcha well, that makes sense uh and then um uh, and you said that uh, looking at something, oh, uh, offering a consultation, you're going to do just an invaluable service and you're going to look at the sample I'm sending out to agents and you're going to look at my query. What kind of things typically are you expecting to to revise for me? What are the most common types of mistakes you're seeing authors make? That In a query? Correct. Mm -hmm. And the query and then that initial sample as well. Um, so I do, uh, I've done a lot of just like, just one-off query critiques. A lot of writers will contact me about just like, I don't really need you to edit anything for me, but God, this query is killing me. And I'm like, I know, I understand. Uh, the, I mean, it always depends. There are definitely things that are just like general agent pet peeves that I've you know become conscious of over the years. So I try to impart that wisdom on writers whenever I can, like don't start with a rhetorical question, don't write in the voice of your main character. Uh, at the end of the day, just say what the book is about. That's all a query is supposed to do is just make sure you say what the book is about. And anything short of that, I mean, that's the query. So I would just tell writers like, don't overthink it. It's just quick intro, 
a pitch says what the book is about, which means the plot, not the themes, and then a just short bio. And the whole thing should be like no more than 300 words, like 250 to 300 is a ballpark, not a hard and fast rule. But if it's a lot longer than that, uh, rethink the, the structure of the query and what you're really trying to say in it. Okay. Uh, do you typically recommend that I give the agent some sort of, uh, I heard you on the Middle Grade Ninja podcast, that's why I'm Absolutely. reaching out to you? Um, so if you, in that intro paragraph, uh, if only if it's true, I always, like, I have told writers this a lot, like, don't lie in a query and say, like, oh, I heard you on this thing, or I love your client who you've, you know, maybe never read. Um, only say things if they're true. Otherwise, just jump into the pitch and it's fine. But if you can personalize it, always do. It's always a bonus. Um, of course, devil's advocate. If I tell you I love your client, how do you know I'm lying? <laughs> just kidding. Oh, as, when I was an agent, I would get, you know, I read this book that had not come out yet, or, <laughs> you know, I saw that you represent, you know, this author, and I think this author who would be like an adult paranormal romance author, um, I think you would like my middle grade contemporary because of that like I know you don't know who that author is based on you using them as a comp right now so like it's easy to catch a writer in a lie when they say things like that um but also like you don't really need to lie uh it's you know the, the query is about the book the book is going to speak for itself um if you have been to a conference and you know saw an uh, agent there, or if you listen to a podcast and, and heard an agent there, uh, just, even it's just like I follow you on Twitter and you seem like a good agent for this book, like that's perfect uh, just by itself. Like you don't need to, you know, invent something or you know go above and beyond. Just say like, hey, you seem like a good agent for this book, so here is my book, and just go from there. Um, is there anything you'd want to know about the author with their recommend that the author tell the agent about themselves within the query? You mean for the bio? Uh, yes. Um, most writers at a querying stage are debut authors. So I wouldn't worry too much about the bio if you just say like, hey, I'm a writer living in New York. This is my first novel. Like that's a perfectly fine bio. If there's more to it, if you can add what your day job is, if you have a day job, uh, any sort of hobbies, anything that sort of humanizes you, uh, you know, what do you do when you're not writing? You know, it doesn't need to be really long, but if you don't have, you know, those publication credits, you know, feel free to put in whatever. Uh, if you do have publication credits, I would say, always say what the name of that published book was and the year it came out or who the publisher is. Uh, if you self-publish, just say I self-published my novel and then give the title. Uh, always like titles, dates, and publishers are always what I would want to know. And because that's the that's the main question that I always had when I would read those bios of like, this is my eighth novel, and then like never explain what those other seven novels were in the bio. Like, so why are you querying me? Do you already have an agent? Where are these novels published? Um, so just like be detailed in that sense. If you've been published in magazines or online, you know, give like the top three or four publications. You don't need to do a whole list. Uh, you know, go start with the biggest ones and and just name a few of them. Uh, if you have an MFA, you know, say from where doesn't 
it's not really a deal breaker with a query. Like you don't need to have an MFA, um, but any sort of writing program is just kind of nice to know if you belong to SCBWI. I always like knowing just like, are you part of the writing community? Are you like just a good literary citizen? What groups are you in? Even if you're like not a member of anything national, but you just like meeting at your local Barnes and Noble with a couple of writer friends every week, like that's your writer's group. Say that, like, that's perfectly fine. It's just a way to get to know you a little bit better. Gotcha. And since I'm coming to you for a consultation, once we get that query honed and perfect, would you then, with your vast knowledge of what other agents might be looking for, would you be recommending some places for me to submit it to? I do not do that. Um, I will sometimes, if I think a project is particularly special and I know like 100% for sure that I can confidently refer that author, but it's not something that I am comfortable just saying, yes, of course, I'll refer you because that's not always the case. Um, and I would not feel comfortable referring an author without having read their work. Okay. Gotcha. Um, and it wouldn't be just as simple as, hey, let me take a um, publisher's marketplace down uh, and just pick out five. I know that you're not directly referring me. I just I, I can't be bothered to read <laughs> about about agents before I, I submit nothing like that. Nope. If you can't do research on agents, uh, that's a problem because that's part of your job as an author. And if you're asking these agents to invest their entire lives for your career, like you can take five minutes to research them. Oh, that seems reasonable. <laughs> and yet I know from some of the emails I've gotten over the years from lazy writers <laughs> that it's not as no, I, as I want it to be. I actually have, to, I say upfront, like I will not give you a referral on request um, because I can't. And that's, you know, I can, if I really like truly have been working with you for years and know you well enough to like really confidently refer. And every once in a while, a project will stand out as, as something special that I would want to refer personally. Um, so I'm not saying I would never give referrals, but it's not something I can just automatically do. It, it always depends. Gotcha. Uh, and okay, so let's uh, let's talk editing. Uh, I've got all kinds of questions for you, and we'll we'll get in as many in as we can. <laughs> right. uh, but let's start with the sample, and let's move on to a full manuscript. So just that sample, because I want to nail it. I want to get that representation. Mm -hmm. um, what are the common mistakes you see authors making in the sample? What? Uh, how would you go about editing it, and making it uh, bulletproof? So like a first chapter, or like usually, I guess it's like five to ten pages that agents ask for in those. Uh, initial samples. Uh, so a first line, at least for me, goes a very long way. Um, just something that's really eye-catching and different and makes me like kind of sit up straighter and be like, oh, I want, I want to read this. Um, by the end of the first chapter, there should be a clear sense of who the main character is and what type of story this is. And that seems obvious, but you'd be surprised at how often that does not happen. Um, Tragically, I've read so many terrible queries. <laughs> yeah, and you just, uh, and I think much like the query itself, authors sort of overthink it sometimes because uh, they want to pack in all of this information at once. Uh, sometimes less is more in chapter one. I try to tell writers, pretend backstory isn't even a thing in chapter one and then slowly reveal whatever needs to be revealed later. But chapter one should really focus on this is where we are, this is where your story begins. 
Um, I know agents and editors will say like begin with the action and writers take that very literally sometimes, but usually it just means like, what's the first thing we need to see your main character do? And other than dialogue, other than dialogue and inner monologue, what are they physically doing on the page and how does that begin their story? A lot of times, you know, and I'm sure you've seen them too, the, the beginnings uh, that, be, that start with waking up or getting ready for the day, eating breakfast. Uh, if it's kid lit, sometimes it's today is the first day of school or today is the last day of school because it is a summer story. Um, I don't need that exact moment of the beginning of whatever it is. I need when the story begins, not necessarily when the person's day begins. Um, and learning the difference, I think, is a strong revision tool to have in your back pocket when going back to your first chapter after you finish the book, uh, reread your first chapter and think like, is this really the beginning? Like, but by the time you get to the end of the book and you know exactly what the story is, where it ends, what happens along the way, if that first chapter is just falling flat in your own mind about like, okay, the story really could have began on chapter three. Um, this was like all just throat clearing before that. Uh, that's how you know if it's a strong story. Like, can you just remove chapter one completely and the story reads exactly the same? Then remove chapter one completely. <laughs> but it's my, my favorite lines in it. <laughs> Harsh but fair, sorry. <laughs> Merciless. <laughs> uh, and then, um, let's see. Um, so when uh, when you get past that initial uh, opening and you've, you've got a good hook, and are you a big, do you like a gimmicky opening? What what, what constitutes a good opening? Um, it depends on, I, I feel like that's like my refrain of this interview. Like, it depends. Um, but... No, I want you to give specific <laughs> answers that apply to every manuscript and every situation. <laughs> uh, but it truly does depend on the type of, like, what is your genre? What type of story are you writing? Uh, there will be different reader expectations based on genre and what the readers want. Um, you know, a good opening for me is just, like, do I know where I am? Like, what is a setting established? Is a genre established? Is a character established? And And that's basically all I want. I don't know if that answers your question. No, it does. Makes sense. Okay. Um, do you want, uh, unfortunately, I didn't know where the anecdote was to the poison I just drank, that kind of thing? Or is that more <laughs> gimmicky and not, and not worthwhile? I'm very anti-gimmick, personally. Um, but I do think those kind of things work well in like commercial middle grade, because those readers don't have a lot of experience with stories yet a lot of them just graduated out of chapter books so it's not gimmicky to them and that's you know part of being an agent and an editor is knowing like I'm not the audience for a middle grade I just need to know what good storytelling is for that market um so those types of openings work really well in in those for that readership because it's all new to them it's not a gimmick gotcha uh, so once we get the beginning polished and we've got a killer opening that, that sucks the reader right in, what's the net, where, where do stories typically tend to fall apart? Where do they, where, where you see most mistakes? Oh, the middle. Um, and this, I think it's part of that emphasis that publishing has drilled into writers that the first 
chapter is the end all be all of their career. So I, and I, I hate that because part of it is true that you do only send that part with the query um, and that could be make or break. So I think a lot of writers spend a lot of time really polishing the beginnings of their manuscripts uh, and then the middle sort of doesn't get the same love and care. Uh, they know where they want the story to end. So the endings can be really, really strong. And then that, that middle is, okay, what's my word count? Like you can almost see it in like, as you read, like what the writers are thinking of like, oh, this is too short to be a novel. So I'm going to add this scene now. And, and it, <laughs> you know, for me, I, I think a way to avoid that, um, you know, the, the lagging middle is what, you know, it's often referred to. Uh, to avoid that, I would just say, did this chapter build off of what the previous chapter set up? Or is it repeating what the previous chapter already said? If it's repeating, delete it, or find a way to come at that information from a different perspective to give the story new life. And, you know, always make sure the story is moving forward. I see a lot of, of the the lagging middles just end up creating like a circle of, okay, this part has already been established. We already knew this about this character. Do we really need another scene that reinforces this character trait and like really just like start picking apart what's necessary because by the time the plot is established, which should be between chapters three to five, if <laughs> on average, again, depends, literary fiction writers, different. Um, but on average, especially for Kidlet, you really got to keep it pacey. And if that plot has been established, then the middle of the book should keep building on the plot because all of that, you know, character establishment and, you know, what is the premise, all of that's already been done. So if you're still reinforcing the premise in the middle of the book, then usually there's a pacing issue. Gotcha. Uh, and so what, what's the best way to fix it when, you, when you've got a, when you're still establishing your premise? To fix establishing the premise, you mean? Yeah, would, uh, to fix that lagging middle because I haven't established my premise properly. Go back to the beginning. Usually if, you know, if you're kind of stuck in the middle and, and I've heard this from writers before too, of just like, God, I'm even boring myself with, the, with this story now. Um, if you're bored, the reader will be bored. So if you find yourself really struggling with this middle of the book of like, oh, I don't know what happens next. And I just want to get to this point. I, I mean, I, as a writer, I would say I would be very annoying if I was my own client uh, because I tend to just skip ahead and I write out of order. And to me, that helps. I'm definitely uh, more of a pantser than a plotter. I think people who know how to plot uh, probably don't have this issue as much, <laughs> but people who are just like kind of go, like writing, you know, they know where they want the story to end. They know who this character is. Uh, the the middle of like where things actually need to be well plotted uh, is the part where things fall apart in, in a lot of novels I, I have come across. Um, but I would be like absolutely guilty of that too. And I write on my own projects. I'm just like, oh my God, can I just get to the end? Like, I hate this. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I've got 
uh, lots of questions for you about character and then really nerdy editing questions. Okay. Uh, but I wanted to make sure I didn't forget to ask you about Wayne's World because you had been interviewed, uh, what, seven years ago uh, at middlegradeninja.com. Still available now, folks. Go, go check out that interview. <laughs> um, and you said at that time you have a very special place in your heart for Wayne's World that you couldn't describe in words. But that was a written interview. And I thought maybe yeah. now that we're talking, I could give you the opportunity to expand and, 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 and say what Wayne's World means to you. So I don't remember the context of the question, other than it's just like, what is your favorite movie? It is not my favorite movie, but it's just the movie I've seen the most times. And it's just like the movie version of comfort food for me. I saw it when I was too young to get all of the jokes. So I've seen it a lot since then. And I'm like, oh, that's like, why did I think that was funny when I was seven? I should not have thought that was funny. Um, <laughs> And like just picking up new things. It was just one of those like, I don't know, like weird classics that I just always loved. I can't explain it. Like it's really hard to explain. I will say the best query I ever received when I was an agent um, was a writer who I think read that interview and we bonded over Wayne's World after that interview. This was like when I was a baby agent. Uh, this was a long time ago. And she queried me using only Wayne's World quotes. I don't know how she did it. Like I, I got a sense of what the book was about, and like she like wrote a normal query after to like say what her book was actually about. But she like the whole query was Wayne's World quotes, and I was just like, I'm so impressed by this. But yeah, it was on that interview. So <laughs> I have you. Wherever you are out there, writer, you're, you're you're welcome. I'm glad that opportunity was available yeah. for you. It's fantastic. <laughs> okay, well let's talk. Uh, let's talk character. Um, so you once said that a good character has a life outside of whatever book they're in, and mm -hmm. I want to be able to think about them after the story ends. So what tips do you have for authors that want to achieve that? Um, I like when I, I do, uh, you know, writing workshops every once in a while. So some, like an assignment I like to give is write your character in a scene that is not in your book and preferably not even in the same genre as your book. Um, and do you know this character well enough to know how they behave outside of this plot you've created for them? Um, and that's a good, that's usually like, that's the easiest way I could explain of what I mean by that is, you know, give them a life off the page. You know, I want to read a story and then know exactly who that character is. I know, you know, when you take those little quizzes of like, which blank character are you? those are all characters that have lives off the page because you are able to put them in any situation and apply it to your own life and, and really like know who they are. Um, just characters I care so much about. Like uh, it's not a book, but I will say I still think about Jesse Pinkman from Breaking Bad and just hope he's okay. Um, like to the point where even knowing that that actor is now on Westworld, I'm like, oh, thank God he's okay. Like, it's just like, like, that's what I mean. Like, <laughs> like those types of characters who just stay with you, um, you know, no matter what, uh, just, yeah, someone you can connect with just emotionally. And how amazing was El Camino, the Breaking Bad movie? I know! <laughs> I was nervous the whole time. I was just like, please be okay at the end. Please be okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that was one of my three favorite movies. I think it was last year it came out. Uh, my wife and I, we went to the uh, final episode of Breaking Bad, um, and it was in a movie theater. 
that had been converted to a restaurant. So we watched it on the big screen. Uh, and she was heavily pregnant. She was she was bitter at the time because they had all these uh, blue meth drinks and, and, and fancy oh. drinks available and she couldn't have any of them. Uh, <laughs> we had a wonderful time and then we just had this hole in our heart until El Camino came. Like, oh, thank God. It's, it's, we, we yeah, get it to was know. like resharing. Like that's, that's the character that I just like, I think about a lot. And, and there's like characters in books that you just want to like hug them or, or not like, or just like you hate them so much, but like, that's also a character you can't stop thinking about sometimes is like, Oh, like this person. Um, yeah. Just like having really strong, not necessarily likable, but interesting characters. I think about Gaston from Beauty and the Beast on a fairly regular basis and just imagine him at different scenarios and how would yeah, he, get <laughs> he has a life off the page. He can, you can see him existing outside of that story. Just a tremendous villain. <laughs> uh, and I want to talk about the, we're recording this April 22nd. I've just seen the uh, final episode for the season of uh, Better Call Saul. And I'm, oh my God, I'm, I'm all a titter, but we won't, we'll move on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what, uh, what's the best way then to avoid writing a stereotypical character that doesn't have that life outside of the page? Um, what, what should we avoid? Um, to, yeah, to avoid um, stereotypes. So stereotypes to me, is just bad writing. It's just lazy. And I would say just remember that characters are people. Um, even if you're writing non-human characters, they still need to connect with people on an emotional level. Um, so if you're resorting to just tired tropes or you think you're creating shorthand for what you assume the reader will know, um, that to me is just lazy. So like, I would say to avoid that, one, just think of your characters as people and People are rarely just one thing. Uh, your characters shouldn't just be one thing either. And be aware of what stereotypes have existed before. Um, in Kidlet, I see a lot of these like 80s John Hughes things just getting recycled over and over again. It's just like, that's so boring for one. And it's just not something that kids experience anymore. Like. They do to an extent, but not like the jocks versus nerds versus getting pushed into lockers. And like, that's just like not a thing, uh, you know, for the most part. And, you know, also that's been done before. So if you're going to write these bullying stories about cliques that don't get along, do something new with those cliques. Don't just give us what has been done a million times before. Um, and don't let your characters be only the one thing that other people have defined for them, you know, give them inner lives. And I, yeah, I guess just like think of them as if I knew this person in real life, what types of conversations would they have with their own friends? Uh, you know, who are they to themselves? And, you know, you have your main character kind of assigning these stereotypes usually. Um, you know, if you, it's, I'm trying to think of like a, a more succinct way to say this. So if you have your narrator as I hate this character because blank, um, you know, give a reason why that, that one specific character would hate that other specific character. Don't just say it's because she is popular or she is blank. And the shorthand for like blonde and like popular is very weird and dated to me. Like those are the types of stereotypes I mean. Like, 
you know, we can get into racial stereotypes as well, which is just like, don't like that is like, to me, it's just like the laziest form of writing of like, well, here's the thing that everybody knows. And usually in that case, everybody means white or straight. Um, so if that's your everybody, kind of take a step back and look outside yourself of like, okay, if someone like this character was reading this book, what would they think about my portrayal of them? And then just sort of work backwards from that. Don't make assumptions about your audience. So if I want to write about a character that's not a heterosexual white male, uh, what are the best ways for me to make sure that I'm being true to that um, that character that, that's outside of myself? What are the best, would you, do you have a, um, what are the cultural readers that you might recommend? Yeah, I mean, they're, um, they're sensitivity readers, but that to me is just another word for editors um, who just happen to be from that background. Uh, I always tell writers, you know, ask yourself why you want to write that story about that character. Why, why make that character your main character? Um, and think about why you really feel like it is your story to tell if you want to do it anyway. I, I do think that people can write whatever they want to write, but really like when you're writing outside of your experience like that, and even if it's just like you writing a white heterosexual female character, um, you know, that's still not your experience. So I always just tell writers, you know, if that is who you want to write, put in the work. One, ask yourself why and should you do that? Is it your story to tell? If you go for it anyway, I hope you're reading a bunch of authors who share that background. I hope you're hiring sensitivity readers. I hope you are getting not just hiring outside like for editorial, but just like who are the people in your life from that background? Is it nobody? Then maybe don't write their story. Um, you know, really just put in the work and be aware that, you know, you are going to possibly because of the way traditional publishing works, take someone's spot. You know, there's not a whole lot of uh, books that are published throughout the year and that still exists of, you know, we can't have too many similar stories. And, you know, if why are you telling this story versus an author of that same background telling that story who possibly should be getting published? Um, I would just say, do the work, be sensitive, be respectful. And again, like, don't stereotype and make sure you have just wisdom and knowledge at the same time about why you want to write that story. Makes a hundred percent sense to me. Great answer. Um, and uh, one more question about characters, because something that drives me nuts is passive characters versus proactive. And yet I am guilty of writing them as in my in a first and second draft as much as anybody else. So what tips do you have for turning those passive characters around and for identifying them to know you have a problem? Um, that's a good question, because I feel like that's really hard sometimes, especially if you're writing a character who is naturally passive um, and how to portray that without making them seem uninteresting. Uh, for me, I like seeing a character grow. Um, I will hold out with that passive character to a point. Um, you know, if the story is just happening around them, I do start to question, well, why is this our main character? 
you know, what are they doing to really drive the story themselves? And they can still, you know, be passive in their personality. But when it comes to what their story is, how is it, how are they still at the center of it? Um, and really like deciding if a character is passive at all, which could be an issue with writers, uh, just ask yourself, what choices do they make? You know, is, are they the ones driving the action? But not only that, but by the end of the novel, does the end hinge on a choice that they themselves had to make? And if the answer is no, then maybe it is a passive character. Um, and those choices along the way will help you determine that as well. Gotcha. I always uh, direct people to read uh, Wish Tree by uh, Catherine Applegate. Uh, it's my favorite go-to example for an exa- uh, for a character that should be passive because the, the protagonist is a tree, literally mm-hmm. rooted. <laughs> and yet, I have not read uh, that, and, but I love her. <laughs> uh, and and, and Miss Applegate, if you're listening, you are welcome to come on anytime. <laughs> uh, and then... Um, what are the key differences between writing for middle grade and writing for young adult? Mm. So middle grade, you still have, uh, you know, reading level as a factor sometimes. So the middle grade for me is, you know, age nine to 13, but it can be plus or minus depending on reading level. Um, You know, the sweet spot for like a middle grade protagonist is like 11 or 12. And, the difference to me is just, you know, what is their worldview? So with middle grade, they probably don't have one outside of their own homes yet. Uh, they still rely on their parents for what their opinions are and what they can do, but they are just coming into who they are as people. Um, so it's sort of approaching it as who am I um, as a person, you know, all middle grade novels, I think, are just, you know, metaphors for puberty in one way or another. And I think that that's a good way to just like, know how to talk to your reader of like, you are going through this thing that is so hard to understand, and you don't even know you're going through it right now. Um, It's like all those stories sort of reflect that. Whereas with YA, they've come out the other end of it, and they are independent. And their worldview is shaped by so many different things, because they're getting the world through so many different ways. And I think teens now especially are just so plugged in and so aware and so savvy. Um, but for me, just there is no talking down. I think the the old rule, even like 10 years ago, but longer than that now is kids read up. And that's just like not really the case anymore. Now the protagonist is usually the same age as the, the reader. And with teens, I do think there are probably more advanced readers who are like 13 or 14 reading YA, but they're probably not going through the same experiences as those characters on the page. Um, Cause it's a matter of who am I going to be as an adult, as opposed to just like, who am I in the world, which is more middle grade of like, oh, right, I'm a person. Like, I'm not just this kid who blindly wanders around like I'm just starting to get to know things and then YA is I am one foot out the door I need to get out of here um you know 16 17 is usually the sweet spot for YA and those are kids you know getting ready to graduate and go to college and and having their own lives makes sense to me uh and then a question about theme and then I want to talk a little about publishing and we'll call it a night okay um 
So I want to I want to be respectful of your time and, and and make sure I keep the the trains running on time. But I also want to I, I don't want to miss an opportunity for all the great information I know that you can share with us. <laughs> ask the right way. Um, I want to talk briefly about themes. So what are the best ways for a novel or for a, an author to effectively tease out a novel's themes without bogging down uh, the pacing, bogging down the plot, and also without becoming preachy? The not becoming preachy part is hard. Um, a lot of the books I did early in my agenting career was sort of that era of issue-driven books. So I, I do have a couple of those, uh, as all agents who were selling books in 2011 and 2012 do. Uh, it was just a, a big time for issue-driven novels. Um, and there was that fine line of, am I really overselling this uh, versus am I not being clear enough? And to me, it comes down to story. When As long as something seems true for your character, it shouldn't come off as preachy. I think when you get these long-winded speeches that usually are not even spoken by anyone, it's just the narrator like really hitting that nail on the head of like, and here is what the book is about. It's like, okay, like most teens, uh, and even like middle grade, they're just so savvy. They they get their media through other ways. Like they go see movies, they watch TV, they listen to podcasts of their own, they have YouTube they are doing things that aren't just books. So for the most part, they're already aware of those same themes, just even if they don't even know they're getting it from other places. Um, so there's no reason to really like spell everything out and Judy Bloom, I love you, but there is that like Judy Bloomness when it comes to, you know, issue books of like, here it is. Because at the time, like that was the only way kids were really learning about things, but that's not really the case anymore. So for me, if Shots you're ready, fired. Duck Judy Bloom, oh no. <laughs> I love Judy Bloom, first of all. Um, most of us wouldn't be here without Judy Bloom. That's true. Uh, but then you have like a YA like The Hate You Give, which is clearly issue driven, but that is so specific to that main character's story. It didn't feel preachy, to at least to me, because it all made sense with what that character was experiencing in the moment and what that character was would realistically do. So if it's something, um, I don't know if you remember the book, Go Ask Alice, but it was just like this very cautionary, don't do drugs, like almost like an after-school special kind of book, which was important at the time, but it was just like so over and over again of like over the top almost. And that to me is a preachy book because it stopped being a story and more just like a PSA at that point. Um, but if you focus on like what a character is doing, you can infuse these themes and what and what's happening to the character too. Um, you can say what you wanna say without saying it, I guess. Makes sense to me. Uh, and then what's your, I love asking uh, word people this, what's your uh, biggest uh, grammar pet peeve? Huh. I don't know. There's a lot. Um, I am one of those annoying people who will be like, it's your and like with a little asterisk online. Um, but there's I don't know, I think just bad grammar in general is a pet peeve of mine. It's different when you speak 
Uh, it's very easy to not speak imperfect grammar, which I just did. Um, it is very hard to ignore when it's on the page. So for me, that's just a pet peeve of like, just know what you're saying and, and be aware that you do have to know the rules in order to break them because it's obvious when you're just breaking them. Um, so yeah, I think that just in general is probably a pet peeve of mine of just like learn grammar. <laughs> <laughs> what? Uh, how would you direct someone who wants to learn grammar and, and, and be a better self-editor so that they can uh, take up less of your time when they get to that stage? What sources? Uh, yeah, where would you direct somebody? Was it just as, as straightforward as enroll in a in a class or? Um, I I wouldn't even do that. I would just read a lot and also just listen to the Grammar Girl podcast, which I'm not affiliated with at all, but I just really enjoy it. Um, and follow like copy editors on Twitter. Uh, Benjamin Dreyer is a big one who I like following. Uh, not even because they talk about grammar, but every once in a while they do, and it's really enjoyable. Um, there's there's a bunch. If you just like pay attention to the written word, you'll eventually just will have it, you know, soak in through osmosis. Um, but also, yeah, hire a copy editor. <laughs> <laughs> and that's something I tell writers all the time. When I, when writers reach out to me, I have to be explicit of like, I will do my best with this line edit, but I am not a trained copy editor. That is a completely different skill that I am aware of. I will do light copy edits, but if you, especially writers who are self-publishing, Ooh, hire someone who is actually a copy editor because they they're the most important part of publishing they are the unsung heroes of publishing for sure Who's the copy editor is the copy editing yeah <laughs> very nervous uh sarah lapola have you ever seen a flying saucer and do you believe in them i have not i'd like to think that other life forms are a little bit more sophisticated than the flying saucer but i would like to believe they exist Excellent. Uh, and then a question about publishing. And this is, again, we're talking April 22nd, and nobody has a crystal ball to know how this pandemic is going to end, what all it's going to affect before it's gone. But what changes are you seeing in publishing in response to this? What uh, changes do you anticipate continuing? So, yeah, again, it is April 22nd. <laughs> I feel like we need to keep reiterating the date because things are changing pretty quickly. Uh, you know, like every industry right now, things are uncertain. Uh, a lot of people are working from home. A lot of publishing people are equipped to do that, but the companies themselves might not know what's happening. Um, you know, there might be layoffs. There are shrinking bookstores, which I think is a much bigger issue right now. Uh, less so, not that, you know, the, the industry itself, uh, you know, is, is, has no reason to worry, but I think the closings of retail bookstores and, you know, Amazon not putting as much of a focus on books right now is kind of huge. Uh, Barnes and Noble is struggling. Indies aren't allowed to open and they're not all really set up to do online orders. So that is definitely a factor right now uh, to be aware of that, you know, if we can't sell as many books in stores, publishers might not be able to buy as many books, uh, you know, and those lists get smaller and smaller. Agents won't be able to acquire as many books because there will be fewer places to sell them. Um, so it's all sort of in flux. 
as far as what that means for writers, right now, not a whole lot. I would just say, like, be aware that this is sort of like any other recession where people are just being cautious, but no one really knows. Um, and on a writing level, it doesn't affect, I mean, I'm sure there are writers who are not able to write right now. That's perfectly valid. Um, but keep writing your stories if you can and when you can, because the books that are being bought now won't be published for another two years anyway. There will still be books. We will still need books. Uh, and we'll need a lot more of them, uh, especially since we're all home. So <laughs> maybe hurry up and write those so we have stuff to read. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, there's, I'm just sort of this eternal optimist. So like as much as uh, things are, you know, nerve wracking right now, uh, there's still going to be books. There's still going to be ways to publish those books. There will still be a need for that. Uh, so everyone is just sort of hitting pause and figuring out what comes next, but books will still be next. And something I want to say real quick to the writers listening, because I've been saying I just started uh, just last week started a uh, fiction workshop uh, and I did it in part to help me concentrate because we have mm -hmm. to email each other every day. We don't we do. We have to because I said we have to. It's, it's, it's my <laughs> uh, and we email each other every day with our word count. And I've got a group to keep me accountable. And that's my true payment every time I do the workshop. Um, and that's that's the one of the main reasons I'm doing it, aside from the gratifying uh, nature of working with students. Um, but I keep telling them, if you're falling behind, if you find yourself overwhelming, these are not normal times. And surviving equals winning right now. So if you're not writing, but you're planning a garden to make sure that you're in good shape, should our food distribution lines go down, uh, knock on wood. Uh, if you're taking care of your mental health, prioritize that. Yes. You can write a book later. Make sure you get through this safely. Yeah, I mean, I I heard many people say it uh, sort of like that as well. It's just we're not all just on vacation right now. This is not a work from home little staycation we're all going through. You know, we're all just trying to make it through the day and survive a trauma together while also trying to work. Um, and yeah, just take care of yourselves more than anything else. And I love that you're doing a fiction workshop right now. I'm teaching one right now and it is like, uh, you know, thank God for online workshops, but it's, we also had that like virtual hug with each other of, I'm so glad we can still do this and we could do it online. And it, you know, things are slower right now because we're all just a little bit more nervous, a little bit busier just mentally. Um, but we still have this, like this is still our reason to write right now. And it's, it's really nice. Like it's just a nice hopeful thing that I can sign in and just see all these people writing and be like, oh, right books still exist and writing still exists and it's lovely. <laughs> if uh, those uh, esteemed audience members listening want to sign up for your next workshop, where might they find more information <laughs> on that? So I'm doing one right now. So unfortunately that's, you know, too late to sign up for that one. I do uh, teach the occasional workshop on inked voices, uh, which is even if uh you don't want to sign up for a workshop in particular is a great place to just join. It's a good writer's community and you, know, you can meet critique partners there. Uh, I love doing plugs for them whenever I can, even when I'm not offering a workshop at the moment, because I just think 
it's it's a great organization. Um, and I also sometimes still offer critiques, not necessarily workshops, uh, through Manuscript Academy. And uh, if writers listening know what Manuscript Wishlist is and know that hashtag really well, uh, it is the same people behind that who are now offer workshops and classes. And sometimes I'm up there offering consultations and critiques, so you can find me there also. And then uh, I suppose I, I should ask you my final question because we're, we're getting to that time of night. Okay. Uh, time to wrap it up. My final question is always some variation of if there was one or multiple bits of advice you could give to all the authors listing that you feel would make a significant difference in their career and their work, what would you like to tell them? Just one thing. <laughs> as many things as you want. We can stay here another hour and you can <laughs> I was going to say, I another hour. I would say <laughs> the advice I give most often is read. Read in the genre you want to write in. Read in the genre you already do write in. Read in genres you don't ever want to write in. Just be well read and know what's out there. Read recent books. You know, revisit the classics if you want. Just, you know, you have to be a good reader in order to be a good writer. To me, there's no, there's no compromise. Excellent advice, and I wish that every author listening uh, would take that to heart. Nothing breaks my heart more when I uh, when I start a workshop, and I always ask, "What's the last book you read?" And somebody says, "Interview with a Vampire." The oh, <laughs> Andromeda Strand. It was amazing. Well, okay, but <laughs> there've been books written since. Hopefully, they read it like a month ago and not in 1992, but still. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so remind uh, everybody one more time where they can uh, find you online on Twitter, all that good stuff. So my Twitter handle is just Sarah Lapola, uh, all one word. And you can email me at Sarah at nextchapteredits.com. Um, or you can find me on Readsy and it's readsy.com and then slash Sarah Lapola, I believe, uh, is my actual page, but you could just search for me there and, and reach out. I hope you do. I know as always, esteemed audience, find me at middlegradeninja.com. Download your free copy of Anakin Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. You're on quarantine. You have time. Check it out. You'll have a great time. Uh, and uh, so thank you again for, for making the time tonight. This was an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me.